0: looking forward to us working through this chapter today. We we're going to see in our text today that God God is going to invite Israel and will invite us to to consider what great things he he the Lord has done. To remember to remember what God has done to save and rescue his people. To remember and to worship um, we, we are all guilty, pastors are guilty of this, we, that we drift, we can drift from forgetting what his gracious and powerful rescue has saved us from, what his grace is doing even currently. Um, uh, recently, I just tossed out this question for us to consider what great thing Jesus has done, basically asking it this way, what did Jesus rescue or save me from? Or if I did not have Jesus in his rescue, I would be kind of fill in the blank. Where, where were you in your life? Where would you have ended up? Here, here's a, a sampling of some ways that people had answered. Jesus rescued me from self, from seeking satisfaction, worth, and purpose in worldly pursuits that would never satisfy and only hurt. The lies I believe have been replaced with his truth. He loves me like no other can. He saved me by his shed blood. He rescued me from myself. If I did not have Jesus in his rescue, I would be chasing fame and living this life all for my own glory. This world and its pleasures would entangle my heart, leaving me hopelessly unfulfilled. Jesus saved me from looking desperately for some person to be all that I need because he is all that i need i would have been disappointed confused hopeless and empty if i did not have jesus and his rescue i would be even more of a self-righteous fool trying to unsuccessfully rely on my own goodness maybe you would sort of insert some things similar to these answers and and maybe your your answer isn't like I would have I would been saved from a horrible life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, but maybe, maybe it would be. Maybe it was. But regardless of what the spectrum of that looked like, all of the above or whatever your fill in the blank is, we needed rescue from trusting on something other than Jesus for purpose, for our refuge, for our rightness and atonement, and for, for any kind of hope. And it's an amazing gift to slow down, and I so loved reading these this week, to, to consider what great things Jesus has done. And along with considering what Jesus has done in the sense that we're looking back, what this does is it, is it reminds us of the grace we need that fuels and compels us to ongoing trust, ongoing love, and ongoing obedience to what Jesus has done. And so we come to a moment in... Israel's story, which is thousands of years ago, but it but it really is the same old story of humanity. People need rescue from themselves. They need rescue from their sins. I just I just you noted in all of those answers, many of those answers, it was that God rescued me from myself. I needed rescue from myself, and Israel needs rescue from themselves. And God, as their covenant king, because of his grace, he did wonders for them in history past. And we will see here again, he's going to work his gracious, kind work again, drawing them to himself with their whole heart to worship, to give thanks, and in response to his salvation with the goal of continued trust and love and obedience. So... Let's pray. Let's pray now and just ask the Lord to bless his word being preached and would help our hearts to encounter his grace afresh this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you that 1 Samuel chapter 12 has relevance to bear down upon our heart and for us to come and encounter Jesus today. Um, we need your help to, to, to know that. We, we left to ourselves would would not know you and trust in you and love you, and yet we know that you have... As we've been remembering even today, you're Emmanuel, you you entered in and you came towards us. And so let us experience your grace, Jesus, again today. So that in turn, we we would be moved to worship and to trust and to follow you. So thank you for your spirit that is among us. Open our hearts and our eyes today to you. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in chapter 12 today, but I wanted us to back up a little bit before we begin moving into that and, and read verses 14 and 15 from chapter 11. Um, some have suggested this is somewhat of a summary of what kind of expands out in the situation in chapter 12. So kind of to set us back up. Remember, Israel is gathering, uh, Samuel gathers God's people in this sort of uh, setting in of Samuel. And this is what verse 14 says. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. You notice that renew the kingdom in verse 14. It's really important because it is here that Israel's coming not to renew a kingdom regarding saul 's kingship, because this is brand new there 's nothing to renew. this is a renewal of their heart to the Lord and his kingdom, an allegiance from their heart to the Lord as he 's instituting this transition to human kingship kingship and so we've we 've moved from the time of judges to the time of kings Samuel's passing on the baton to this first king Saul, and this is what we See in verse one of chapter 12 and and Samuel said to all of Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. So Samuel's there. All of Israel's gathered, and what initially happens is, is what it's kind of look like a legal proceeding, sort of a courtroom scene, and we've got three parties that are going to sort of give their testimonies. Uh, some are innocent, and um, as we suspect, one will be a guilty party. And so, who is our first witness? Well, we see Samuel. Samuel says he's he's. There And there's this new king walking before you, which is, of course, Saul and Samuel. He has had had walked before them already. What does this walking mean? It means this this sort of performance, right? The activity of the office and Samuel steps up and we're going to hear his testimony of what his activity of his office was like in verse three. He says, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded whom have I oppressed or from whom whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with testify against me and I will restore it to you. So Samuel stands before them he gives his testimony and he says from his youth. He has been faithful. Remember, he was brought into priestly service as a young boy under Eli the priest. And now he is old and gray. And he is saying he has been faithful to this task. Witness before them and before the Lord and even this anointed one, this new king. He has been faithful in his role as priest and prophet and as judge, as military leader. And he vindicates himself before them. You might have drawn attention, you might have remembered this word taken that he repeated several times in his his testimony that we've seen before. Remember the the warning against sinful human kings. What would they do with their power? They would take, take, take. And... He is saying, I have not taken anything from you. Even, I think, in comparison to his sons who perverted justice and took bribes, he did not do this. He is not taken from them. He's the one who's righteously given and taught and led in intercession to his people. So what's happening here? He's vindicating himself, um, but commentator John Woodhouse says, in his vindication of Samuel it meant the indictment of the people. So he's giving his testimony of of innocence, and yet in this, he's at the same time indicting Israel, meaning he did nothing wrong. And remember, they were demanding a a king, some other leader, other than the leadership that they had, because they assumed that they were failing. But when he testifies of his faithfulness, it actually leaves Israel guilty. Consider the the mom who's doing her best chef work, cooks a wonderful meal, puts it before the child. The child kind of groans and pushes the plate away in disgust. No children here have ever done that. The issue does not speak to the problem of the cook's ability, but the bratty, unthankful child's heart. Does it not? So he presents his faithfulness to them. And then we see verse 4 as they are sort of indicted by their own fault, uh, failure. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and His anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So Samuel's testimony, Israel responds, not guilty you you this is true Samuel had delivered God's word he has been faithful as chapter 7:15 says all the days of his life so Samuel gives his testimony who's up next the Lord turns and presents his case look at verse 6 and God begins with this survey of his faithfulness in Israel's salvation and Samuel said to the to the people the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And they forgot the Lord, their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and, now del- and But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jurabal and Barak and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered or, or saved you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. What did the Lord just do? He just, he just took them through the gamut of what, God, what he had done on their behalf. His faithfulness, his righteous deeds to provide salvation, previously generation, previous generations, and for them. Of Jacob, when they were in Israel and they were in slavery, they cried out, God delivered them through Moses and brought them into the land. And yet they forgot the Lord. So he disciplined them. They cried out again, we have sinned. They confessed their wrong. They had forsaken the Lord and served idols and God sent again saviors to them. He raised up judges that came and rescued them. And Samuel is in the midst of those list of judges God's work on their behalf, God's gracious faithfulness to save. And in the same way that Samuel's vindication was an indictment of Israel, the Lord's vindication was again, an indictment on Israel. See, if God had failed, then it would have been fine for them to look elsewhere for another leader or a king. But if, he was, if he's been faithful as king and savior, then they are guilty as charged. They were in the wrong. And yet all along, generation to generation, even in their sins, God had been merciful and gracious to them. And then he exposes the failure on the part of the, the group right there before him. Look at verse 12. This is just what happened with this very group of people. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Remember episode just last week in chapter 11. The Ammonite, Nahash, whose name means serpent. However long he had been oppressing and threatening them, Israel, again, this this cyclical issue. They rehearse and they concoct this sort of dumb solution. No, the Lord isn't there to help us. We should look to a King, another King to reign over us. This was just like all the other ones before turning in unbelief to something other than the Lord to save. Now, remember it was, it was in God's plan and it was okay for an expectation of a king. We've we've looked at this before, but just as far as reminder, Genesis seventeen six. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and He promised, "I will make you very fruitful, and will make a nation. Uh, will make nations of you, and kings will come from you." There was a descendant from the tribe of Judah that the Lord said, "The scepter shall not depart from." Judah, a ruler, a kingship would come from him. And then in Deuteronomy 17, those rules and principles that kings should follow, that when they go into Israel, Israel goes into the promised land, they will ask for a king and you will d- indeed set a king over you. So reminder that the issue isn't that they needed a ki- or wanted a king. It's that they were looking to a king for their hope, for their security, for some, at them as some sort of like political savior. Uh, I've read this quote before, but it's just so wonderful from, from Dale Davis. Their help now was not in the strong name of Yahweh, but in a new form of government. It is not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. Americans, let us read that quote and heed. First Samuel, let let us. Heed The lessons that God is giving us in first Samuel in this moment for renewal, this allegiance from their heart, will Israel trust in the Lord? Will they trust him? And, and as we've been seeing this sort of cycle played out in the Lord's testimony, and then here Israel is again, it, we're sort of left with will, will the Lord just leave them stuck? In this place, even in their foolish choice of choosing a king, are they ruined by this decision? Well, what happens next is is amazing. After their testimonies are given, this indictment on Israel part part is very clear. God offers an invitation to be restored, to repent and know his blessing. So with this new human kingship, their allegiance needing to be renewed, they, they, there is an invitation from everyone to now embrace this before the Lord. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This sort of ultimatum is put before them. Their choice of monarchy did not mean they were hopeless. God was linking His covenant arrangement of blessing and cur- curses that were before the people already, and now He's linking it to kingship. Deuteronomy twenty-eight. If you go back and look at that text, it lists the blessings and the curses that would come from God's for God's people if they trust Him faithfully. They will be blessing. If they reject Him, they will experience those curses. And yet, here we have this invitation now trust me, follow me. Now notice a king didn't change who they were to fear, serve, listen, follow, and not rebel against. It was always the Lord. It was always to be the Lord. This was both for king and for the people. And if they both did that, it would be Well, for them, in other words, just because they have a King, it did not excuse their responsibility to look to Yahweh, to follow and obey the Lord and vice versa. Each had responsibility. It wasn't on the King to sort of be their spiritual leader. And they could just sort of disengage. It was for both of them to lay hold of the Lord. And so In order for their hearts to be awakened, as God does many times in the Old Testament, he displays his glory in a miraculous moment. This is what happens in verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king, so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord in Samuel. So God gave God sounds and rain, things they heard and things they saw in this moment. And they notice in verse 17, Samuel asked, "Is it not harvest?" season our wheat harvest today. This would have been in a very dry season there between May and June. It was very rare for any kind of rain or storm to be present. Apparently it'd be like saying, you know, it's mid February and the news guy's saying it's going to be 85 this week. This is, it ain't going to happen. That, that's not going to happen. And so you had this moment where rain would have been very rare and Samuel calls upon the Lord to do something in a moment when even the crops would be very vulnerable during this season. A bad storm would, could easily destroy them. I, I've been camping a few times and when a very serious storm comes through in the middle of the night. And uh, it, is, it, is, it is quite the experience to know you just have this very thin layer of cloth above you and you just have thunder booming over you, lightning over you. You'd be very vulnerable and exposed in that moment. I think there was somewhat of an experience here for them. They, they realized their vulnerability, their weakness. The Lord in this powerful event was displaying his authority, his kingship over Israel, and all nations, and weather and crops, and and they were in desperate need of something outside of themselves outside of their selves, including this newly minted King Saul. It says that they were supposed to feel and know their wicked, that their wickedness was great and that the Lord was great. This is, this is a, we have to see this as a mercy for them, for them to know that there's something greater than their wickedness in this moment, As I just read this text, I just, I just was, I was reminded of how thankful I am that God is greater than my wickedness and my sin. Aren't you grateful that the Lord is greater? His power is greater than what your sin has left you in. And this is what, how Israel responds in verse 19 after this merciful awakening. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God. That we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. That very sin that they had committed by asking for a king like other nations and rejecting God as king, they became aware of their sin. And, they, and they're, 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 they're saying, this is, we added this to their previous sin. They're confessing the things that they've already been doing wrong as well. This humbling experience before Yahweh, look at the, they actually refer to themselves as servants now. The encountering of a powerful, glorious God awakened them to their need for something outside of themselves, an awakening to their need to their sin. We see an echo of this in the passage in Exodus 20 at Sinai, when God gave the law, when it says, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they said, Lord, please don't speak to us. We need, we need a mediator. You, Moses, speak instead of the Lord. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that, you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. So, like the event, Israel is hum like that event, Israel is humbled, and they acknowledge, they confess their sin, that they have rejected the Lord, and they beg Samuel to pray for them. They know that their sin would lead to death, and they needed a mediator, somebody between them and God, in order for them to be rescued. What does God do? What does God do? More than the certainty of Israel's sin and judgment is the certainty of his immeasurable grace. Though they asked for a king and God gave them a king and this was a form of judgment, his mercy is stronger than that. His grace and his mercy is bigger than that. And the Lord speaks a word of comfort Through his grace. Look at verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. This is stunning for that to come in a moment when fear seemed absolutely appropriate before a holy God. And we'll understand more why in a moment. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside to empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Astounding words. Though they have done evil, Samuel tells them, do not be afraid. So along with their confession that they have sinned, and what true repentance truly looks like, they couldn't just stay there in confession. It must lead to action. They, they must follow the Lord and serve him with all of their heart. And that meant turning away from something as they turned to the Lord. They can only worship one God. There should be no other gods before them, no idols before them. Jesus taught us that we, we it's impossible. We we can't serve two masters. We will love one or hate the other. And here there is this same reality. This meant that they must forsake their the idols of their heart—empty things that can't save, that can't do good, that are nothing, and that are useless. I appreciate author Tim Chester. He he draws out two questions. That he says Samuel gives us sort of criteria for identifying idols in our lives. What do you think would make your life good? Samuel earlier was saying, turn aside from following the thing that, that you think can profit you. What do you think would make your life good or do you good? Or secondly, what do you think would stop your life being bad? What do you think is going to rescue you from that bad place. For any answer other than God, he would say, the verdict is you may be looking to something like an idol that is just simply empty. That is pathetic. That will leave us, leave us empty. Something other than the Lord that we're trusting in, that we're loving, that we're putting our confidence in, that the Lord himself has already given us. Those questions are really helpful for me. Is there anything that maybe comes up that you would identify in answers to those? So what, what hope is there for Israel in this moment in what seems like all of their turning away in the weakness of the human heart? There had to be something greater than Israel's fickle heart. Not based on their good record keeping, which is seriously messed up. That is, that is nothing they're holding up. And what seems to be the continued weakness of their heart again and again. What would be stronger than their heart? What would enable them to not fear in this moment? The ability, the, the hope to find renewal and the hope to follow the Lord's covenant. Well, it would be His gracious work. Look at verse 22. This is where hope is embedded. For the Lord will not forsake His people. For His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things He has done for you do you Do you see that that promise in verse twenty two it would be the certainty of the Lord's glory for his name's sake. Why did he make Israel his people? Why did he choose them? Well, he would, he would tell them it's not because they were of great number or because they were lovely or lovable. It's because he set his love upon them. He chose out of his good pleasure, out of his good joy, to choose a people to whom he would love, knowing where they are weak and vulnerable and human, and yet still chose out of his great grace. He can't break that covenant, even if they did. And all they needed to do is look back at what great grace that he had continued to work on their behalf again and again and again. It was that motivation that I think Samuel was drawing attention to that would say, allow this to then draw you in fear or in reverence or in trust to give him all of your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. And then Samuel committed to pray for them. Remember they asked, please pray for us. He said it would be sin for him not to do so. So in their renewed allegiance to the Lord, they knew they needed something outside of themselves to mediate on their behalf. A power and a grace outside of them was necessary. And because of God's covenant faithfulness, He provides a mediator who would pray for them, intercede between them and God and teach them all that is good and is right. And if Israel would trust on the Lord, remain humble and look to him and repent from their heart, they would be safe and blessed. Verse 25 gives us, though, a sobering warning. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your King God's people are to follow and trust the Lord as King and the King himself to do the same as he honors the Lord and to reject the Lord would only bring judgment. It's amazing. It's amazing that Israel got this. They didn't deserve this, but the Lord was gracious Even in human sinfulness and failure, the sovereign God, out of his covenant faithfulness and grace, accomplishes again and again great things for his people as they look to him and trust in him. This is amazing grace. As we shift from Samuel's role in leading as last judge into kingship, he, he will remain in the story his prophetic voice will be necessary as every king will be in the future. But our, our narrative ends with, with just an accent of hope. But there's lots of chapters of Samuel ahead. I think a question sort of finds herself at the end of this. Will Saul and Israel do this that was instructed? Will subsequent kings do this? Israel was made aware of their desperate need of the Lord's amazing grace. They, they must remain in trust and worship to him. This, this is the same for us today. Saints, this is, this is the same for us in our Christian life to remain desperately aware of our need for him and the Lord's amazing grace and his provision for us to turn to again and again. We need his grace. I love this short quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, we hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. Israel could do nothing at all to fix and remedy their situation except turn to the grace of God Israel was to feel they could do nothing without him. He was their hope and he did not withhold himself, but gave all that he, all that they needed in himself. Even though they did wickedness, asking for a king, he was merciful instead of judgment. He offered them hope in the midst of their fear. He reminded them of his goodness and his patience. His even exposing of their idols was his grace and now here he's providing Samuel who's fulfilling this priestly role of intercession for them so that they could continue this this chapter is dripping with God's grace and it's ultimately is pointing us to something greater than Samuel's work on behalf of this unfaithful people someone greater that would come who would intercede before a holy God for the sins of the people. And in God's good pleasure, he would send another mediator, a perfect mediator who would pray for his people, who would teach his people truth to those whom he loves. What is this? What is this greater ministry than Samuel? It is, it is Jesus. Jesus is the greater priest and greater prophet who would bring intercession for Sinners who desperately need a rescue. This is what First Peter chapter two tells us. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He, he's the mediator in that he's the the substitute that comes in between sinners who need salvation, and he inserts his perfect life on their behalf, who perfectly obeyed all of these commands that were given here in this and more, whom God appointed to serve perpetually in that role for all of those who would trust on him. Because see, though God appointed Samuel to serve in this way, he, he was still a sinner and he was just a man. And all of his intercession would be imperfect and it could not last forever because he was getting old and he was going to die. Jesus came as a perfect mediator who never dies for he is not only man, but he is God and he does this forever. That's why we have a promise like Hebrews chapter 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Aren't you thinking that he always lives to make intercession for you? And he's able to save to the uttermost. No matter what we have done, what feels like we've done too much, he can save us. Christian, he's doing that right now. Romans tells us who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is amazing grace, church. This is good news for us. Consider this great thing, really the greatest thing that God has done for us, and that is what he has done in Jesus to provide a mediator for us that we would know God and have access to God who is indeed right now at the right hand of God praying for you and me. For what you've done today, for what you've done yesterday, and what you will do tomorrow, we know we have an intercessor for us. One of those testimonies that I mentioned earlier, someone wrote this, Jesus save me from myself. If Jesus did not rescue me rescue me I would be hopeless I was made for him hopeless hopeless without Jesus condemned without Jesus stuck forever without Jesus under judgment without Jesus and yet he comes and he saves us from from ourselves, from our own little kingdoms that we try to set up just like Israel did so that we can in turn live for him, follow him, and enjoy him. So this is what grace does. It, there was a lot of challenges and calls to follow and obey, but when we encounter God's grace that saves, that power of his grace Draws, in, draws us to be able to not only trust and be sa- saved, but to remain in Jesus and to follow Jesus with all of our heart. We do this in a response to our salvation, not for our salvation, because his grace comes and gives us new hearts. We're filled with his spirit and that grace now empowers us to live obedience in obedience to his word as we follow Christ. I think this is why Paul carefully instructs in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Grace that empowers us to respond to the salvation we've been freely given in Jesus, to love him and follow Fear will not compel us to live holy lives, but encountering the grace of God in Jesus Christ draws us into reverent awe and hope with a loving desire to honor him with our life. That grace is greater than our sin. As the song goes, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Do you see his grace greater than all your sin today in God's covenant promise to redeem a people church, his, his glory and his name were, were on the line. So can human weakness stop the glory of his grace? Can human failure stop the glory of his grace? Can your weakness, can, can my junk and weakness stop the glory of his grace? Well, praise God. Praise God that his grace is not bound up in the up and down of our fickle hearts. This is good news of his grace for us. For his namesake, for his great pleasure, Jesus comes and he saves you and he cleanses you and he's interceding for you right now. But I love what Ephesians 1 tells us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Saints, he, he has set his pleasure and joy upon you. Not because of what you have done or what you have accomplished or what you're going to do. But to the praise of his glorious grace, in in his loving pleasure, he loves you. You are in blessed in the beloved, and he gets all the glory because of his grace, and we get the blessing of his present and eternal love. Why we get these powerful words being spoken over us, as well as Samuel told them, "Fear not." How can we? how can we believe that because his pleasure is upon us because all of those who delight and trust in Jesus are united to Jesus. And if you are, you have sure confidence in the delight of God for you, his pleasure upon you. Can we, can we take a moment now and pray? And as we do, I want you to consider what great thing he has done for you in Jesus. That little exercise that many people responded to. Uh, let today be a moment for you to consider His grace. Let us let us renew our hearts with joy and hope, and in loving obedience because of the great thing He has done in His grace for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Your grace, Lord. We just, it's going to take a moment for us to pause and just maybe in your own words pray and thank the Lord for the great thing he has done in his gracious work in Jesus. Lord, we we desperately needed your rescue. We desperately needed someone to pray for us. And Jesus, thank you for the certainty of your grace. That you didn't wait for us to get our act together, but you you came in and you interceded for us. And you invite us today, this morning, to renew our hearts and trust in your grace. Lord, I ask for, if there's some here that just, that sort of desperate need, um, even a need for you that is not present, Lord, I ask that you would awaken their hearts to your your work, Jesus. A need for forgiveness. A need for Your wonderful, merciful, gracious work at the cross. And Lord, I pray for some that are here. Maybe in, the, in condemnation, just seems so thick. It just feels like the decision they've made in making somebody else, something else, king than Jesus. It feels too grievous, too great. Lord, would You remind them that Your grace is greater than all our sins today? And you invite them into your grace this morning. And Lord, would you renew all of our hearts with a fresh joy to know that we, we can follow you and trust in you and obey you with a fervency, Lord, a joy that comes through knowing you will help us. So renew our hearts, Lord, with trust and hope today in your gracious work. And keep our hearts to continue to look to you, Jesus.